1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Everybody is currently talking about the terror. Everyone's watching it. When I say everyone, I mean some of the people that I see on social media. The Terror is a hugely powerful drama series, a horror series, and it's a fictionalised account of Captain Sir John Franklin's expedition to the Arctic where they got lost in the 1840s. Now, friends of mine have watched it and are disappointed because apparently there are monsters in it, which seems to me unnecessary. I don't want to be historically all boring and prudish about things, but if you've got a story as dramatic as Franklin's expedition, why do you need the monsters? You know what? I walked out of Pirates of the Caribbean. I couldn't believe my excitement. Hollywood is doing a big budget 18th century maritime history film. I'm in, I'm keen. And then there's a ghost turned up. Why? No need for it. Anyway, we thought to accompany this TV series, we'd repeat one of our best episodes in the past. Michael Palin. You all know him, he's a national treasure. He's one of the Monty Python. He's a legend, he travels around the world. Most successful and brilliant television broadcaster of our lifetime. And he's a total legend, and it's a huge honour to have him on the podcast. We interviewed him because he wrote a book on the Erebus, which was one of the ships on Franklin's expedition. He wrote the kind of biography of that ship, and obviously we talked to him about the expedition to find the Northwest Passage and the fact that the wreck has recently been found. So great fun to have Michael Payne on the podcast. A huge honour. You can go back and listen to all these back episodes of the podcast without any ads at historyhit.tv. Please go and check it out. It's a digital history channel with thousands of podcasts and documentaries and everything you need if you love history. Someone said to me the other day, they like the ads on these podcasts. They think they are amusing to listen to. Well, I'm flattered, but I'd rather you went and subscribed to History at .tv to be absolutely honest with you. There's plenty of funny and amusing and interesting things over there. So please head over and do that. Lots of wonderful content dropping this week, including a wonderful documentary we made interviewing some remarkable female veterans of World War II for Women's History Month. So please go and check that out. In the meantime, everybody, enjoy Michael Palin talking about Erebus and Terra, its accompanying ship on the Franklin Expedition. Michael Palin, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What a book this is.
3: Well, it, it was sort of something that came completely out of the blue. And for a long, long time, I thought, I'm not I'm not a historian. I'm certainly not a naval historian. I just loved the idea of the life of this ship and what it had done and the places it had been and the fact it was rediscovered. All those things sort of combined to make me feel there was a great narrative here. But uh, there were a lot of traps on the way, you know. A lot of people have written a lot of material about, especially about the Franklin expedition. Would I be up to... Um, to, uh, you know, their, their scholarly standards. But, um, yeah, it seems to have worked out okay.
2: It's worked out very well. And, of course, you bring your not just your sort of historian and writing skills to it, but that of a traveller. You've seen the world. so And this book took you all over the world. We should say, right, so Erebus, t- w- w- when was the ship built? Where, where, did it, where did the story begin? It was built in,
3: well, it was commissioned in 1823 um, and built at Pembroke Dockyard in wales which is on the edge of milford haven so it was actually launched into milford haven where there's now a big oil refinery and it was one of the newer dockyards the admiralty had had commissioned they commissioned it probably while they were still fighting the napoleonic wars and in fact after the wars ended and britain's navy ruled the world we just didn't need uh, a navy of the size they had at that time so quite how Pembroke survived, I don't know, but it did and it continued making warships of which Erebus was originally one. And what was the job it was intended to do? It was called a bomb ship. Um, there was a class of about six or seven of them and they um, employed mortars, heavy sort of um, uh, 10 men mortars on, on board the ship which were used for bombarding coastal positions, um, laying siege to places without having to make a landing so there there were quite heavy mortars and that's why the ship's decks were um, diagonally planked and made stronger than they would normally be which is uh, i suppose uh, why they ended up in uh, as being chosen for polar exploration but that was a bomb it was a bomb ship it was a warship originally
2: yeah because so those bombships they were firing mortars high trajectory, so there'd be enormous sort of Kick from those that would go with the whole hull had to be designed to sort of not fall apart. And did that mean that they were also? Why would those be used for high latitudes? Was it they wouldn't be crushed by the ice? Well, that was the that was
3: the thing. I mean, obviously they they would meet ice. They would meet sort of quite light ice. It wasn't really an icebreaker, but of all the ships in the navy at the time, they were the they were the strongest in terms of hulls and being able to withstand that kind of pressure. So they thought. I mean. You know, the Antarctic journey went further south than any ship had ever been and encountered um, um, conditions that no ship had ever been into. So no one quite knew what they were going to get, but they, they were as strong as, the, as any ship around at the time.
2: I didn't know anything at all about that Antarctic history there, but so please tell me about that. And just, But before, though, what, what was it in that period that was driving the British and other people to high latitude exploration, North and South Pole? What, what, did, what was the prize? Well, it was
3: really down to a man called John Barrow, who was the Second Secretary at the Admiralty, and he was obsessed with polar um, successes, polar exploration in the north because they just wanted to really find out whether there was a passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific. But also, whalers had said there's an open sea beyond the ice up there. And so, just just curiosity. And in the south, that was largely driven... um, by the need to uh, make a magnetic map of the world. It was very, very important at that time to understand how magnetism worked and how the magnetic field of the Earth worked. And this really involved lots of observation, um, places being sort of erected around the world to test uh, the measurement. Once they understood magnetism, then um, navigation would become much easier, uh, much easier to steer ships, understand about currents and everything. So... That was the main motive for the Antarctic journey. But I suppose you could also say that that, that they did it because they could, because after the Napoleonic War, Britain's navy really did um, rule the seas. Um, and they were the sort of, if you like, they worked for clients like von Humboldt, who was a great German explorer um and gauss and people like that a lot of a lot of european research had been done especially in germany into um into terrestrial magnetism so the british navy was uh, you know working for these clients as it were um taking the ships down there which they couldn't themselves afford um so you know, it was it was britain was at that time reasonably settled they had a strong navy they could do it so they did
2: and these Tell me about the human, what sort of sacrifice did the humans on the ships, the crews have to bear? I mean, how long would they be away for? Tell, no, typical, well, tell me about the Erebus' journey down to the, the South Seas. The Erebus' journey to
3: um, the Antarctic was, I mean, they had instructions from the Admiralty to stay for at least two um, Antarctic summers, uh, exploration, best time for exploration. In the end, they made three separate an, um uh voyages right into deep Antarctica so the men were away for almost four years um, they had time ashore. Uh, Tasmania was very important or Van Diemen's Land as it was then called um it was in Hobart that they had time ashore um but apart from that it was either at sea or in the ice um or in the Falkland Islands, where they spent quite a considerable amount of time, but none of them seemed to like it there at all, and terrible things happened down there. But these were the, the Tasmania and the Falkland Islands were the two sort of stop-off points for the Antarctic.
2: So, yeah, four years away on that journey. And it's worth remember I mean, was anyone volunteering for that mission, or were they, 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 would they be impressed men? Who, who, did anyone have any choice going to go and spend four years away?
3: No, they all had a choice. In fact, press gangs um, disappeared right after about 1815 because the Navy had so many people, so many sailors that could not be employed. I think the numbers employed in the Navy went down from about 140,000 to about um, 20,000 within a period of about four or five years. So a lot of sailors around wanting a job. So they could pick and choose the men they wanted. And uh, someone pointed out all the... All the sailors were <clears throat> were able seamen, which was slightly one degree up from um, the common deckhand, as it were. So they all had they all had some qualifications. They were paid well. They were paid um, double for going to um, the Arctic or the Antarctic. So you know you made money out of it. I mean, it does seem odd that they should volunteer for something like that. But you know, this was that they they had a, a, a captain who was prestigious. They had the backing of the Admiralty. The ships were well stocked, well looked after. Um, you weren't going to get killed because it wasn't. Oh, well, hopefully you weren't going to get killed because it wasn't a
2: sort of military expedition. So it was actually very attractive. The Antarctic expedition. And on this Antarctic expedition, what special provisions were made? What special arrangements? I mean, you know, thick coats, gloves. What, what kind? Of, what were there? What mm. were, were there any innovations that the Admiralty introduced trying to try and keep the sailors alive and slightly more comfortable in that, in that climate? Well, they did, have, they did have special
3: sort of Arctic outfits, um, which were like that. Thick sweaters, coats, um, socks, um, boots, scarves, which were issued when they got beyond a certain latitude to the south. So if you got on a very cold day before that. I think yeah, Pembrokeshire, you know. I'd probably need that in Pembrokeshire. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that was, they would get a special kit, um, usually at the beginning, you know, once they'd gone south of the Antarctic Circle um beyond that you know nobody knew quite what they were going to um encounter um they had heating on board ship they had a a sort of heating apparatus and everything was sort of the heating was recycled so that when you what you cooked from the you know the steam that was generated and that warmed the ship as well so they had they had something to warm the ship
2: um but, yeah. but the ship is still made of wood, no steam engine propulsion. This is this is sail power, is it? All sail power on the Antarctic
3: journey. And this sort what makes it completely remarkable. I mean, no, I don't think in, in, any other vessel in history has gone further south than they did, purely on wind power, which meant when they were in the ice, they couldn't turn. It was very difficult. They were stuck and just had to hope to get through. Um, but engines were fitted for the um, Arctic expedition the franklin expedition at the very last minute and everything was done at the very last minute to get the franklin expedition going um they said oh yes we should we should have some sort of auxiliary power so they got um 25 horsepower railway engines off a railway company down in south london put them in the ship lowered them into the ships um a brilliant man called oliver lang was in charge of the um, conversion of the ships for the Arctic fitted a special retractable propeller and um, and installed the motors, but they weren't. They weren't. You know, they were only to be used uh, in extreme circumstances. But I mean, twenty-five horsepower is not much good in the ice. In present uh, icebreakers, it's about sort of forty thousand horsepower or something like that.
2: So uh, let's finish the Antarctic one. So they come yeah. back. They spend they spend four years on that expedition, <coughs> and and is it a success?
3: It was re- it was very successful. Uh, most of the success came in the first expedition, which is when they discovered that there was a, a continent of Antarctica and they actually set foot on it. No one no one really knew that for sure before. They also discovered there was a volcano, which was named by James Clark Ross after the ship. That's Mount Erebus. They discovered the ice shelf. The Ro- which became known as the Ross Ice Shelf, which was 200 foot high and stretched for miles and miles. No one had ever seen that before. Um, they, they laid claim to various islands. They also um, found islands on the way to Antarctica and the way back from Antarctica where, where they went ashore. They made uh, magnetic observations. They also checked out flora and fauna. Um, in some cases, they had uh, livestock aboard, which they would put on, onto the island because there was a great colonising feeling at that time that an empty island was an unproductive island and had to be productive. So we're going to put some we'll put some livestock on. We, they had chickens, goats, um, sheep, and they landed a few in the hope they would breed. And then, you know, a few years' time when people would come along and say, this is a very habitable island, jolly good. And so there was a sort of crusading spirit that, that uh, we we were civilising the world as we went along. It was... That, and in terms of sort of mapping... The Antarctic um, continent. It was it was hugely successful, and I mean, right until Shackleton went sixty years later. That was the what what Erebus and Terror discovered was was the the official sort of map of the of Antarctica.
2: And and were there, I mean, are there great diaries and accounts and ships logs? Was it was it a really exciting one to research this book? Um, yes, there were there were the official
3: logs which. All the officers and the main officers had to keep. They became the property of the Admiralty after they came back. So actually, you had to be careful what you said. So James Clark Ross's journal of the voyage is actually quite dry, which is for a sea story. It's not necessarily what you want, but you know what I mean. It's actually very fairly formal. Though occasionally he does go over the top when they're nearly hit by an iceberg. Near the Falklands, he has a marvellous description there. There's a man called McCormick who was the surgeon, and I really loved his his di- his journals because they were kind of quite eccentric, and he would talk about all the wonderful wildlife he saw and how quickly he could shoot it. You know, so, okay. oh, I saw the lovely birds. I do love birds, and I shot four this morning, and I got four teal and I got four ptarmigan. So he was busy shooting anything he could find to put it get it on board ship because, of course, they had no. Photography at that time, no way of recording other than bringing the creatures back, um, uh, you know, and and in in terms of sort of the the um, what they brought back for the naturalists, it was very very productive. So McCormick was good. A great find, which I I was given by some people in the Falkland eyes at the the, the dockyard museum in the Falklands, was access. To a diary kept by a man called William Cunningham, who was a marine on board HMS Terra and Cunningham was a less educated man, so he was not writing such a formal diary, but he kept an entry every single day, and he would have he, he would just have wonderful things, either great, you know, his description of seeing the volcano. Um, what well, was was just marvellous, ecstatic description. But he also talks about, you know, um, people getting drunk and having to be dragged back on board when they're in S- South Africa or something like that, um, how they, they killed a shark, um, which he calls Jack Shark, and they dissected that, and they all ate a bit. And uh, so there's a, there's a real feeling of sort of below-stairs activity in, in Cunningham's diary.
2: And how close did the expedition come to uh, disaster? Because obviously what we, we remember so many of these polar and Antarctic expeditions uh, for, for the terrible endings and, the, yes. and the, uh, the, the privations. Did it go fairly smooth? I mean, hitting icebergs, being caught in big storms, but, I mean, that's all run of the mill.
3: The Antarctic journey was amazingly successful in terms of, um, you know, they, they lost about four men in four years. They were sort of swept overboard mostly. Very, very little, actually no instances of, of scurvy or the normal things that, that would affect people on board ship for a long time. So they're very, very healthy. Um, but they did have this, they well, they, they went into some storms, which you kind of amazed that any little ship like that could survive. These were just going across the Southern Ocean. But also at the very end of their second expedition round Antarctica. They were heading for the Falkland Islands. They were nearly home when suddenly they found themselves in the middle of the night confronted by a wall of ice with a very narrow gap in it. <clears throat> and um so they all they all woke up and and in in order to avoid avoid each other and get through the, the gap at the same time, the opposite happened and terror hit Erebus its anchor was embedded in the side of the ship. The Two ships absolutely collided and crushed, and there were a lot of um, descriptions from various people on board at the time saying this was the end. There was no way out of this. Terror slipped through the gap in the ice, but Erebus was stuck, and all the um, their, their sails and their rigging were all ripped apart by the collision. But Captain uh, Clark Ross did this um, extraordinary manoeuvre, which is called a sternboard manoeuvre, which is when you almost put a sail ship into reverse um, don't ask me quite how it's done but it, it's very very difficult to do and in those sort of circumstances uh, perilous but he managed to just get them through at the very last minute and so I mean they just they avoided death by inches there but I think on, on a number of the storms you, you can't believe how they survived and they all say the next morning gosh we're, we're lucky to still be here
2: You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit, talking to Michael Palin, big time. More after this.
0: Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert
3: guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast
1: by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected, digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. they got back to Britain, but that's not the end of the story for these ships. No, far from it.
3: Um, They'd proved themselves to be stout survivors of polar conditions. And John Barrow, the great man who had been sort of the impresario of of naval exploration during the early part of the 19th century, um, was... Approaching his eightieth birthday, he was about to leave the Admiralty. He said, "We can have one last chance to do what I've always wanted to do, which was to get an expedition through the Northwest Passage, get ships through from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And we now know enough. we've got the ships, we've got the technology, um, and all we need now is a leader for the expedition. we'll let and let's go now, James Clark Ross was the obvious man, the obvious choice was actually quite shaken by what had happened in the um, in the Antarctic in fact there's a there's a wonderful little passage I found of a, a diary um, kept by a woman called Sophia Bagot, who was the sort of I think she was the daughter of the man who ran um, the naval base in in Cape Town and she had dinner with them when they just come back from the Antarctic and she said you know your hands are shaking and this was both Both Crozier, Captain of Terror, and James Clark Ross said, Your hands are shaking. And apparently, Clark, Clark Ross just said, Yes, this is what one night in the Antarctic did for us. So it was probably that collision has shaken them all so much. And Clark Ross said, No, he wanted, he'd got married, he was having children, never didn't want to go to sea again. So they approached John Franklin. It wasn't everybody's choice. He was 59, going on 60. Most people thought he was too old for the expedition. Um, but his wife was very, very was a sort of vigorous, sort of networking lady, Lady Jane Jane Franklin, and she was determined that he should get the post because he'd been sacked as Governor General of Tasmania, and she wanted to make sure that history did him proud by, um, you know, leading the expedition. So he became the leader, and. In a very, very short time, and about sort of three or four months from the end of 1844 to May 1845, they got the Erebus and Terra ready. They had to do some more work, strengthening of the ships, putting in um, the small auxiliary engine, getting all the crew together. And it was, all, it was all a mad rush, but they left in May 1845 on one of the most sort of best equipped and, and most sort of, prestigious expeditions the royal navy had ever launched
2: and uh, you know, all the all the sort of modern advantages you, you mentioned like they sort of had preserved food and they they it began to feel like a really quite a, a modern um kit that they sailed with yes
3: the issue of of the food was, was was always a big one in the story they had canned food i mean tinned food had been i think a frenchman had sort of Established the the technology in uh, about 1800 something like that so even on the Antarctic they had some canned food a lot of canned food um, on the Arctic expedition all supplied by a man called Stefan Goldner who was not the Admiralty's first choice he was a second choice but he put in a cheaper bid and there's just a lot of talk and a lot of research being done as to whether the tins themselves were contaminated whether there was too much lead in them and all that there's there's no actually no evidence in the end, and in fact the most recent the most recent research suggests that there was no more lead poisoning in those than there would have been in the you know in pipes in people's homes generally. But it was a big issue the the cans of food. But yes, they had they had canned food. They they you know they were they felt utterly confident. And in the the, the few writings you get before they actually set off from Greenland to cross. Um, into the into the heart of the heart of the Arctic, this great optimism from all the officers. This is just going to be wonderful. We're all so happy. We're terrific enthusiastic. See you next year in in Hawaii. You know, they're honestly thinking that. The only, only time you hear any doubts are usually from the crew. And there's a very touching letter um, by a man called William Thompson. Who writes from Stromness, which is the last place in the Orkneys before they actually set off for the Arctic, and just writes to his wife and says, "Do look after the children, do look after that. you know things could go wrong, I may not see you again Very very touching, but none of that amongst the officers they couldn't failure was was failure was not an option.
2: Here we come, Honolulu uh, and so they were going to go over the north of Canada to into the uh, into the Pacific where where is the, where was their last contact with other human where, where's the last place we know they were at it's um it's a, a a few miles um
3: to the west of a place called uh whalefish island which was and that's on the western coast of greenland and that's where they did their final uh got their final storage together they had a, a boat which accompanied them from london all that way um to carry stores which are then loaded onto the two ships before they left um, they left Whalefish Island sort of um uh, mid July eighteen forty five. Um at the end of July two whaling ships uh recorded seeing Erebus and Terror. In fact one of the ships boarded Erebus and Franklin, being the sort of affable, clubbable man he was, said, Oh, we must come and have dinner and all that and uh, then they found that the, the weather conditions changed the next day they had to move on back south to england so they left him and that they were the last people to see the ships and the, the masts were last sort of seen on the horizon uh the very end of july 1845
2: and do we think 1845 was a particularly cold was it a particularly cold snap so were they were they unknowingly going into a a, a even it would have been a difficult task at the best times, but were they unknowingly going to uh, a particularly frozen North Arctic Sea? Well, we do know that the years from
3: 1846 to 1849 were amongst the coldest recorded in the Arctic. They were very, very, very severe. They actually managed to get across Baffin Bay, which is, you know, that can freeze, that can be difficult anyway. They got across Baffin Bay because... We do know from discoveries in 1850 that um, they got to a place called Beachy Island, which is at the end of Laxter Sound, very much in the heart of the Northwest Passage, because three of the men, three graves were found there of men who died in 1846. So we know they got that they got that far quite easily. What happened was that after that, they they were. They were asked, they were sort of commissioned by the Admiralty, instructed by the Admiralty to go due west for the Bering Strait, not to go north, not to go south. They were found eventually in the south down near the um, Canadian mainland. So something must have happened um, in 1846 in the summer there. They sailed down. We do know they sailed down. They were beset by the ice um, in September 1846. And that was further south than anyone expected them to have gone. So that's why the expeditions to look for them didn't find them. And they were stuck in the ice there for two and a half years. And that's when they decided to leave the ships and head
2: south and take as much as they could with them. And they all perished. So so they were stuck in the ice for two and a half years living on the Erebus. Cheek by jowl, slowly their supplies running down. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't
3: unprecedented. There'd been other Arctic expeditions where ships had got caught in the ice. It was Edward Parry's expedition in 1824. They were stuck for two, two winters, and they sort of survived... Paris sounds like a great great character. Actually, I'd love to write a book about him. He organised sort of plays and sort of shows and all that. And they all have to get out and do things and put on costumes and all that. James Clark Ross was actually on one of those expeditions and um, played a part of a girl in two of the dramas. And this great wonderful sort of handsome hero had actually been in drag in eighteen twenty four. But no, they were they were stuck and and the in eighteen forty seven. Anyway, there were many, many search expeditions thirty six were commissioned between eighteen forty eight and eighteen fifty eight and one of them discovered um, much later on ten years after they'd left, a record of uh, in a, in a in a canister in a cairn which had been left by the ship, saying that in eighteen forty 1840, may eighteen forty seven they were fine, but they were, they had drifted south, they were stuck in the ice but all was well, and Franklin was commanding the ships around the side of this same document, and added eleven months later it was a completely different story, which is that we um, we were stuck in the ice for yet another summer. We decided to leave um, Franklin died um, in june eighteen forty seven fairly soon after the the first message uh, fifteen officers uh, fifteen men and nine officers had died no one was quite sure of what and we were abandoning ship so um that that's how we know that they they left and tried to head south and that's the only document left behind by this expedition and you know the navy was absolutely obsessed with documents they kept records of everything so they're they're there somewhere
2: (laughs) so that you think that they could be in in canisters hidden and dotted around the, the canadian arctic
3: well, they could be um or they could be on board there could be records on board the ship both both ships now have been um discovered under the uh, the wrecks of both ships have been discovered, so there could well be material on board the ships. The rest of it no one really i don't no one knows what 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 has happened to it. the papers will have blown away. The Inuit were not particularly interested in gathering records, um, written records. They believed in oral history and all that, so paper didn't mean much to them.
2: But there is quite interesting Inuit oral history, isn't there? About what? What isn't there about what might have happened for last survivors?
3: Yes, I mean almost all the evidence is from Inuit history, um, because, as I say, there's only one document in, in English left behind, and. This was gathered by various people, including John Ray, who was a, um, an employee of the Hudson's Bay Company, came from Stromness in the Orkneys. He was surveying up in the um in the Canadian, high Canadian Arctic when he met some Inuit talked to them, and they said yes four four summers ago, or four winters ago I can't remember what they said, but it was that four years ago we we saw um, about forty Kablunas, a name their name for foreigners dragging. Um, a sled with a ship um, uh, on 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 board with a boat on top of it, south, and they also said we found bodies at various places. They gave Ray one or two um, artifacts, which had obviously come from the ships, and that's when he knew. Uh, he brought the news back that um, they had probably all perished. Um, worse still, the Inuit said that um, it was clear from the bones, the state of the bones bones in pots and all that, that they had kept alive by cannibalism, which, of course, was received as a horrific shock back in this country. But the Inuit told them that. The Inuit also said that it wasn't to the north. They actually had gone south. Um, They said they had sightings of both the ships. On one of the ships they found a man. Um, But nearly all of this was sort of discounted because there was no written record as you say it was all oral history but the events subsequently have shown that the Inuit were almost exactly right about everything um even where the ships were eventually were eventually found but the problem was that nobody as far as we know nobody on board either ship had a a working knowledge of Inuit they didn't speak the language so when they did leave the ships, there's a sort of the Inuit record or oral record of meeting a group of men Um, and they were were, obviously they said they were in a bad state but they traded some food with them but then neither side could understand the other so the unit went one way and the men went on further south if they you know if at any stage they had actually been able to to speak the local language they could have they could have gone out of the, the mess they were in. And this could have happened a lot earlier. But no, the ships were just self-contained worlds where everything they needed was there. They had books. They had, you know, sort of um, teaspoons with their initials on it. They had wine. They had, um, you know, they had um, organs to play music on. They had all that sort of thing. But then nobody knew how to deal with the local Inuit. And once they were off the ship, they were just um, open targets, really, for the cold
2: so you are a famous traveler and you made sure during this book that you went everywhere you've been north south where where, where, tell me some of the highlights the place you've been
3: well i went to i went to the northwest passage um um and but that was kind of quite ironic i went in 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 um, august of last year and it was a it was an Expedition with about ninety people on board, and it called in franklin 's footsteps, so we went to we went to Beachy Island, which is where the three bodies were discovered and there the the graves are still there now, and that was a, that was an extraordinary sort of feeling to be walking this bleak shore, knowing this was the very first winter when three of them had died, and the ships this is where they 'd wintered they must have looked out on this incredibly sort of bare exposed landscape uh, for months and months before even going on south. We then tried to get, and what I wanted to do most of all was to get to the wreck area and be able to at least see where it was. Uh, Ideally, I would have loved to put on a scuba and dive down with with the archaeologist, but that didn't seem to be possible. But we did hope that we'd get down to um, King William Island where the ships were found. We got through almost to the Victoria Strait and that's when the captain said we can't go any further because the ice is so thick that we don't know when we'll be able to get out. So it was actually just a kind of reworking of what had happened to Erebus and Terra. But, of course, the Arctic is warming much more now. It's uh, There's much less, there's much more open sea, less ice. But, you know, the ice that gets trapped in these narrow channels, you can see that Erebus and Terra were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we got so close to their graveyard i suppose you could say but but um we understood why they why they were stuck Um,
2: why uh why have you you certainly haven't lost your your love of travel what is it what is it that visiting these places be they natural wonders or place where history has happened Mm. what what is it that makes you keep wanting to visit these places and new places all the time i think it's partly the adventure and
3: the the drama of, of a new experience um i mean i don't have to travel far i'm going to manchester and find a bit of a city that i've never seen before and that excite i find that very exciting and you have to it opens your eyes it forces you to look around not just sort of st- stick in your hotel or stay on board um and uh, you know that was the spirit of all these guys who went off to the arctic and the antarctic especially to the antarctic they they wanted to see these places they'd never been to these places before they wanted to record them they wanted to get out and walk around them, and that's what I always feel that I want to do um, because I, I learn something each time. I learn something about myself and my own ability, my curiosity, my my understanding of places, um, my ability to sort of um, sort of absorb new impressions. That's that's really important. That keeps my own brain ticking over. But the other thing is that I think there's a sort of continuity of history. Um, that's really why I was so you know, happy to go to, to to Tasmania and just see the little area. There's not much to it, a little sort of area of the bay just outside Hobart where the two ships moored um, for several months um, when they came back from the Antarctic. And to feel that like they were there and this is what they would have looked out on and there's the same lighthouse about ten miles down the, a uh, few miles down the strait. So it's that sort of feeling that that there's some, I don't know, spiritual connection is is putting it a bit far, but but just sort of observing what they would have seen as they left an area. It's like being in Stromness and looking out to sea and seeing the two capes, and that would be the last they would have seen of Britain. And beyond that, it's just the roughest, some of the roughest seas in the world, and this is what they would have gone to. So I was kind of experiencing my. Their own butterflies, you know, by my, my, my own sort of by um, looking at it myself.
2: Now that we've stolen you away from comedy and from travel, we've, you're a historian now. I'm glad to say we've got you into the, we've got you inside the tent. How, how did you find writing history and researching it? Was it, did you find it exciting? <laughs>
3: Well I did I mean, I was trained as a historian. And that's what I did at Oxford. Unfortunately, I used to do history in the evening and comedy and acting during the day, so I, I, was, I rather just did enough to get by and get I think
2: you degree. chose the right. I think you went down the right path <laughs> what history or comedy
3: <laughs> but I mean it's always been a fasc- it's always been an interest of me of mine um, and in fact, when we were doing Monty Python, we we wrote the Holy Grail, which is sort of based on sort of a version of history, so was Life of Brian. So historical research was always there in the back of my mind. This was the first time I'd actually done a, a book involving pure research. And and I, I just was very, very nervous of getting into someone else's territory. And I know people who spend years and years working on some tiny aspect of the voyage. And what I did was just take an amalgam of all that. I was very much dependent on a number of very good correspondence, a number of very good books about the period. I took these all in and decided the best thing I could do is to try and write a sort of thriller. I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be a story which carries you through and doesn't suddenly drop you in a mass of detail. And, and so, you know, one's, one's, one's um, sort of attention span sort of goes off. I wanted to keep the, keep the tension there as well as the information about what was happening. So that was a tricky thing to do. And if I pulled it off, then, then I'd be very happy.
2: I'm going to ask one of those absolutely infuriating questions. Like when people come up to me going, are you tall? And what's your favourite of history? Uh, what, what bits of the world haven't you been to yet and you want to go to? I haven't been to any
3: of Central Asia, um, the Stans. And I really would like to go to the area around the Altai Mountains. I think they're in either Mongolia or one of the Stans. You've probably been there. Have you been there? No. Anyway, just because... In all the histories of Europe, so many um, uh, invasions have come from Central Asia. I don't know what it's like up there. Why did they want to leave? Why, why, why did it make them such fearsome, fearsome warriors? Um, where did Kublai Khan come from and all that? So there's an area there that I would, I would love to see.
2: I don't know about you, but I feel I haven't scratched the surface. I mean, do you do you feel you've seen lots of stuff, or, or do you still? The more you travel, the more you think. Well, there's a whole valley, the valleys and mountain ranges. That just because you're walking through one area, you don't get a, you, you can't see everything.
3: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely totally agree with you. People tend to say, "Oh, Michael, you've travelled the world." I mean, I've been to many countries, but uh, you, you know, I've been through those countries sometimes four or five days. I haven't I haven't been up the side roads. I haven't seen this mountains and the canyons and the far far regions of the country because you can't get there there's always something more to see and i think that's the great thing about traveling is that it, it just asks many more questions than it gives answers and people sort of oh what's the world like well go and see it you know which bit do you mean um so there's always something there's always something else to see and i think the to me, the ticking off of countries uh, is is unimportant. That doesn't mean anything. It's where you go to in those countries, and I could go back to all the places I've visited, which happened to be, I think, ninety eight countries or something like that, and and see something there I'd never seen before.
2: Well, and I, I completely agree with you. I, I find Britain, and I, I walk I walk everywhere. I explore things, and I'm finding new things out about this country that I've crisscrossed a hundred times. I'm finding out new things every day. So it's good to hear you can have adventures at home as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the more I read, uh, researching this, about what, what the
3: scientists were looking for, and, the, and you listen to Attenborough and you read um, um, you read books like the Earth, you know, Forte's book, you realise that just under your feet there's things that could keep you there for sort of two days just to understand that place you're standing in. So it's, it's an endless task. And I I'm, I, I, just, I know I'll never, ever complete a task like that, but you complete little tasks and that's the main thing.
2: Michael Palin, thank you so much. The book is called Erebus, the Story of a Ship. And it is out right now. Go and buy it everybody. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.
0: I feel we have the history on our
3: shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished.
2: I'm just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I've got a little tiny favor to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favor. Then more people will listen to the podcast. We can do more and more ambitious things and everything will be awesome. Thank you.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History Hit. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift... You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.